Let me see if this one works. Nope. Are we on? There we go. Yeah, we are on. Hey, everybody. Good to see you this evening. Excuse me while I get settled in here. Hope you all are doing well this evening. And uh, welcome back to the Auditorium Bible Class, and I am certainly glad to be back with you. And, and uh, looking forward to getting into our lesson tonight. I think you'll find it maybe more relevant than you might have thought. Excuse me for a second. I have to get everything unhooked here so I can breathe. Okay, there you go. Well, I uh, hope you've had a great day, and welcome to the month of October, right? Uh, here we are working our way into the fall season for sure. Felt good this morning to be out. And uh, looking forward to a great week and uh, exciting left, what's left of October ahead of us. Um, keep in mind this week a few things. Wednesday night, uh, normal midweek service. We have a missionary with us uh, that our church has supported for many years, uh, Jacob Gadala. And Jacob is a missionary, uh, a native Indian and, uh, from India. And so he's going to be here with us. And I trust his family will be here, his two boys. Known Jacob for a long time and looking forward to having him with us. Wednesday evening, share his ministry in, um, uh, in India and the things he's doing there. It's a multifaceted ministry for sure, as many of them in that part of the world are. And um, Thursday, we have day five. Some of you that are involved with day five, that will meet this coming Thursday morning. And we have a guest speaker uh, for that. And then uh, next Sunday, we start our Bible conference. It was, it's been mentioned now for many weeks. So I hope you'll this week particularly be praying for the Bible conference. Um, we start next Sunday morning with Dr. Wayne Willis, a longtime friend and, 
and personally and a friend of our church, and we're always thankful to have Brother Wayne uh, here with us. He was here with us a couple of times in the, in the summer, shortly after my initial um, uh, uh, fall, and, um, and so I'm looking forward to having him here. And then next, next Sunday night, of course, we will not meet for Bible studies. Uh, we'll have our, our Sunday night service for the Bible conference, and uh, Dr. Matt Smith uh, will be with us. And uh, Matt, of course, part of our church for many years. And looking forward to him being with us and sharing with us. First time back, I think, in our pulpit since he took the position there at Lebanon. And uh, we just got a great uh, few days planned for the Bible conference. So be praying for it and uh, looking forward to what the Lord will do in that. And then, um, you know, October has its own sort of busyness. Before long, we'll be talking about Fall Festival. That's coming up. And so uh, keep up with all those things in the Weekly Connect and uh, be able to uh, be a part of them, we trust, as you will. And, um, of course, a reminder tonight, we're sort of back in our routine, except for next Sunday night. Uh, we'll be back in our routine through the end of November. And at the end of November, we see all evening Bible uh, study groups because of December has, is full of activities and events that are happening. So uh, we're going to be finishing our study at the end of November as we work our way through the remaining part of the Old Testament. We're continuing in our study of Old Testament survey, and it really is a survey uh, intent, not spending a lot of time in detail, kind of glancing at these books, and probably, as we will tonight, remind you of some stories that you've, you're familiar with to some degree, and maybe some names you've heard of, and gets us a place to do that. So uh, I've got a schedule worked out that'll get us all the way through the end of November, and we'll finish the Old Testament, and uh, then uh, we'll set aside December, do all of our Christmas stuff, and then come back in January and start a new series. And, and a new year, too, right? So uh, hard to believe. Here we go, 2024. So it won't be long, will it? Well, I want to pray. And, uh, of course, as we're praying, remember there's meaning on our prayer list. And I, I appreciate so much y'all's prayer for me and, and uh, uh, recovery things. I've had, of course, shoulder surgery since you saw me last up here anyway. And uh, that went well. And uh, recovery is getting there. You know, weekly therapy does wonders. And uh, so excited to see uh, the, the, I'm sort of looking forward to getting the weeks ahead uh, done and, and hopefully improving with all the things that are uh, right now a bit of a challenge to me. Appreciate your prayers too. Kelly and I just came back uh, this week. Uh, we're at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. Some of you have been there and, and uh, I was already registered many, almost a year ago, I'd registered for a pastor's conference there. And uh, so I, uh, we, we got permission from the doctors and the therapists, and everybody said, yeah, we think you can go and be just fine. And uh, so we went up to that this week and spent three days there. About 1,000 people at that conference, hundreds of pastors from all over the country, and uh, a real encouraging time and, and a real uh, fruitful time in many ways. Drove back in Friday night from up there. And uh, so uh, still recovering from a little bit of jet lag from that trip, but all good for sure. And, of course, praying for Pastor Paul as he's recovering from... Uh, his recent sickness, we got several folks uh, this week that have, that have uh, cropped up with some sickness, so we'll be praying for those, and we trust it'll be a, a reminder to all of us as we go into the fall and winter season to, again, sort of put, a, put back on our thoughts about um, uh, being healthy and sanitized and all those things that are important um, for us to sort of minimize the spread of germs as we go through the fall and winter season again. Um, well, let's pray. We're going to pick back up. I appreciate so much Brother Lee filling in for me the, the one Sunday there that was immediately after my surgery and, um, um, and finishing really the, the sacrifices that he covered from the book of Leviticus. So I appreciate him doing that. I told him it certainly fit well into our, into our study, one little place of detail and certainly worth the study. So glad for that. 
Um, so let's pray tonight as we get started, and we're going we're gonna to sort of jump back. We're going to take a half a step back and then catch us up and uh, get into our lesson as we go through the evening. Uh, but let's pray. Father, thank you for our day. What a beautiful day it's been, a beautiful weekend. We thank you for this time of year that we see um, the seasons change and just reminded of the system that you have instituted here for us to enjoy uh, the beautiful fall of the year and the, and the transition in our seasons. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be at church today and to hear your word so plainly and truthfully proclaimed by Pastor Nick, and I pray that we'll indeed find a resting place uh, in our hearts and our lives as we live for you each day. Uh, thank you for the, the opportunity to come this evening as we continue our study of the scriptures, uh, looking at the Old Testament. And uh, we come tonight with grateful hearts for your many blessings on us. And I pray that you'll bless each of the Bible study groups that are meeting tonight. For the children, as they're getting a new series started, I pray that you'll bless them and the excitement that goes with it and the workers that are already put many hours into preparation. I pray that you'll bless their efforts and their labors and the word as it goes into the hearts of our young, our young people. Uh, we do pray tonight for those on our prayer list. We especially thank you for our pastor and pray that you'll strengthen him and allow him to, uh, to come back quickly to be about the normal duties I know he'd like to be a part of. I uh, pray that you'll bless others on our, on our prayer list, some that are uh, in some challenging physical situations right now. We pray that you'll bless those needs and raise them up quickly, we pray, would be our prayer. But we pray that you'll show your presence and your strength in their lives uh, very evidently each day. I pray that you'll uh, bless the, um, the many who are fighting some kind of sickness even this week from our church. And I pray that you'll be honored um, through those prayer requests and the needs and that uh, we'll indeed rejoice in your goodness as you answer those requests. I pray that you'll bless our, our, the, the Bible conference that is now just less than a week away. I pray that you'll bless the men who, as they come and prepare, that you'll lead and guide and direct their thoughts and their hearts to present the word to us. I pray that it might be a great uh, few days as uh, we rally our thoughts and our attention to your word. Uh, I pray that you'll bless um, Brother Jacob as he'll come this week, travels, traveling mercies for him and his family, and pray that uh, his time with us Wednesday will be profitable. And I pray that you'll be honored through our time as we gather around your word these few moments. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, let's take half a step back, uh, again, to kind of remind ourselves a little bit of the Old Testament. And I um, appreciate what Brother Nick had to say Wednesday night about the Bible, as it's kind of our emphasis for the uh, month of October. By the way, there's a Bible reading plan uh, that's available, uh, that's being put out. I haven't been here this week to know how that's being done, but I know the Bible reading plan starting today is from Psalms 119. And uh, Psalms 119 is an entire psalm, 100 and, I don't know, 40-some verses, maybe more, uh, that has to do with the Word of God. And it's broken into eight-verse sections, so not, not a very complicated process. You just read eight verses. And maybe meditate on those verses. Maybe read them once in the morning and once in the evening, just to re be reminded of what we can see in those verses about God's Word and the importance of it. Of course, this is kind of our Bible Emphasis Month here as we're thinking about the Bible Conference and other things, too. So let me remind you of that. and hope you'll get started with that and stay up with it. We'll, it'll run uh, from today all the way through the last Sunday of the month. And again, eight verses a day is not going to take long to do and uh, will be very beneficial, I'm sure. So, well, let's start back with our study to try to sort of put some general guidelines or some terms and let's step back to Genesis, and let's remind ourselves kind of where we've come so far in our study as we've looked at these individual books. In some cases, as we'll do moving forward, group them together. Um, in Genesis, we find the universal history, uh, sometimes called the pre-Abraham history, which covers chapters 1 through 11. That's the creation, it's the flood, it's the Tower of Babel, it's the Garden of Eden. 
those are kind of the four big events. So to put them in order, the creation, chapters 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, uh, the, the murder of Cain, kind of an extension of that in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is the genealogy chapter. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 is the account of, of um, the worldwide flood uh, of Noah, what we call Noah's flood. After having just spent a week up at the ark, I can, uh, that one's really fresh on my mind. Um, and then uh, chapter 9 is coming off the ark and the uh, covenant that's established there with Noah. Chapter 10 is another genealogy chapter. Those are important. We don't skip them, but they are important. And then chapter 11 is the account of the Tower of Babel. And that's, those are important elements in the history of humanity. That's why it's called universal history. So the first 11 chapters uh, deserve a lot of time and attention, and, and they're very important for us to understand that God's work in, uh, in the creation and following and the judgments that come and why they come. The rest of Genesis, starting with chapter 12 then, picks up the account of the patriarchs. This will be Abraham. The word patriarch simply means fathers. So these are the founding fathers, if you will, of the nation of Israel as God instructs and works through their lives, uh, beginning with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and his sons. And the, the one that gets the most attention toward the end of Genesis is Joseph. And then Genesis ends in chapter 50 uh, with that long lineage of all the events that happen in the lives of those uh, individuals. We turn the page over to get to the book of Exodus, and we find there the Egyptian captivity of the Hebrews now in Egypt, and what, would, what could rightfully and is often referred to as the slavery of the Hebrews in the land of Egypt, the captivity that's there, and then God's call upon Moses. And, of course, Moses becomes the central character for the next many books, and, of course, much of the Old Testament, um, his shadow is cast long and far. Um, the book of Exodus then tells us that great account of God leading um, uh, the people out of their bondage through the hand of Moses and the words of Moses, the plagues that come to the land of Egypt, and how they escape and, and uh, find themselves leaving to go down to the Sinai Peninsula to meet with God. And by the time you get to Exodus chapter 19, they're there at the base of the mountain, and uh, Moses will go up and meet with God and receive the commandments, including the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. We continue there at the base of Mount Sinai through, in, through the entire book of Exodus, through the book of Leviticus, and then by the time we get to Numbers chapter 10, uh, the people of uh, the Hebrews now are being instructed by God to hit the trails, time to get on the road, head to the promised land. Uh, they have received much instruction. They have received the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, and uh, they begin to uh, see themselves now as an individual group of people. God intended them to see themselves not as Egyptian slaves, but as God's called people. And so he was really working in their hearts and in their minds to give them a focus of who they were to be in his eyes and how he would use them to influence the world. Uh, however, that influence was hinged upon choices they would make. And in so doing, we then start the journey of the wilderness travels as they start northward and begin to work their way to the promised land. However, in that promised land, they come to a place called Kadesh Barnea, and there they make a decision that they're tired of following God. Uh, the spies come back with their report of the promised land, and uh, only two of those reports are good in honoring to God. The other ten are very negative, and they make a decision. We will not follow God. We don't want to go to this land. We'd rather die here or die. We wish we'd have died back in Egypt and all the, the murmuring and complaining. And uh, God basically gives them their wish. 
Uh, he says, because of your, your, diso your disobedience and your hard-heartedness, uh, you will wander in this desert till this generation dies off, and that adult generation will die off in the 40 years of wandering in the, in the desert. They got their wish. And as a result, it will be their children and their grandchildren, which will then go into the promised land. Uh, we have to get through the book of, um, uh, of Numbers and their travels. So then we get to the book of Deuteronomy, which is this, the, uh, the sermons of Moses. There's three great sections in, in Deuteronomy where Moses explains to a new generation their obligations before God. Um, and so they hear it again from the very uh, lips of Moses, what God had instructed Moses to tell them. Uh, Deuteronomy is a, is a tremendous book. In many cases, I think it's one of the most overlooked books by, by Christians today, but it's a tremendous book of, of reminding us the principles of how to live as a people and how to follow God's commands. Eventually, though, Moses himself even doesn't go into the Promised Land. He dies on the uh, east side of Jordan and is buried there by God. Uh, and in the process, the transition of leadership goes from Moses to Joshua. Joshua will lead the people into the promised land and a miracle that God will perform there at the Jordan River uh, where he will again allow a new generation to walk across the riverbed on dry land and God will stop the water part the waters and they go across on dry land so they too have an experience like their fathers and grandfathers had uh, of seeing God's power at work they go into the promised land and they will of course uh, their first victory will be at uh, Jericho soon followed by a defeat and then a victory at Ai and they be they, the rest of the book of Joshua tells us about the battles that they faced. It doesn't tell us about all of the battles they faced, but it tells about the, the battles they faced uh, in the southern and northern parts of the promised land, the land of Canaan, it's, it's called, which we'll mention here in just a moment too. So they go in to, to, to take possession of what God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis. And uh, they are now the descendants of that promise. And they take possession and they establish local rules and those local rulers are judges, they're called. And that gets us to the book of Judges. Again, don't think of judges like we do in modern term in a courtroom with a black robe. Judges in this day were more like regional governors. They were given the responsibility of overseeing one particular geographical area. The book of Judges names 13 particular judges for us. Uh, the two most that we're probably familiar with there would be Gideon and Samson. We're given more detail about them, even Samson, before he's born. But we're given more detail about them than we are the others. But there are a series of things that happen. And again, we see the, re the repetition of the hearts of the people now in the promised land is to begin to follow after idol gods. Uh, they get cold in their faith, if you will. They turn their attention to the idol gods of all the surrounding peoples. And they begin to worship those idol gods. And God brings judgment to them. And then they repent, and then they cry unto God, bring us a deliverer, take us away from this bondage of uh, the captivities. And God does. He raises up a deliverer. They're called judges. And the judges will deliver them from, from oppression, and they will for a time rejoice in God and follow his will. But then what happens? We see the story repeat itself over and over. It's the same plot line all through Judges, just different names and different places. Uh, a very interesting book. It's not a book you get into lightly, though. Judges has some challenging things to sort of think through and process, but it is a very rewarding book to spend some time in. From Judges, then, we see Israel become a nation of people that has no king. And we're told in Judges at least, I think, three times 
uh, a phrase or a verse that says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes, which meant that there was no standard of the law. The people had even forgotten God's commandment of how to live as a, as a people. And so the king was not there. And what a sad commentary. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And therefore, they found themselves in great turmoil. And uh, so we, we sort of get to that point. We got to, to Judges. We would include Ruth in that story. Ruth, the book of Ruth, happens at the same time period of the book of Judges. So we, uh, we put those together with, uh, with, uh, with that thought in mind. And Judges covers several hundred years. It's three or four hundred years of time it covers. So we, we get just a glimpse into what's happening there. It's also in the book of Judges that we're introduced to some of, the, some of those pagan gods. We're introduced to a female deity uh, idol called Ashtaroth. And she is referred to often in phrases like uh, the groves of Ashtaroth, groves referring to forested areas. Ashtaroth in our modern culture today is still a viable idol. We know her as Mother Nature. There's lots of people today that worship Mother Nature. And that's the very same deity of idol worship that was happening during the time of the judges in the land of, of Canaan, um, the promised land. Uh, and so there was that deity. There was also another deity, a male deity, the counterpart to Ashtaroth was the male deity Baal, probably one of the more familiar names you'd run across in the Old Testament. Baal is mentioned frequently, and um, uh, the, uh, uh, the worship of Baal that was conducted. Uh, again, Baal was seen as a god of nature. Um, and you often, they would depict him often as carrying a lightning bolt in one hand. That kind of a, he was the, he was the, uh, the god of nat natural forces. Another god you're introduced to in the, that, those books is, a, is a, a god of the Canaanites called uh, Moloch. And um, uh, Moloch is a very, a very evil and wicked, uh, half animal, half human. Uh, idol that they worshipped. And so you'll, you'll run across those with, with some regularity, not in every chapter, but, but with some regularity through those series of books from uh, even from the time of Deuteronomy uh, into the book of Judges. And, and Joshua too is referenced there. And what you see common is when God sends his Joshua out and his people to, uh, one of the things they're instructed to do is to, is to break down the idols tear down those groves of Ashtaroth, break down the worship of Moloch or of Baal. And um, so again, a reminder that those, those idols were such a crucial part of where the people misdirected their attention and their loyalties. And, uh, and we see much of the similar parallel today. Again, it's not hard to, to read modern day uh, America into some of those descriptions that are found there. Now, when, you, when we get through this period, we've looked at some maps. I'm going to use this one um, tonight. Uh, just as kind of a reminder, when we, when we follow the movement of the Hebrews from Egypt through Mount, through, to Mount Sinai and then back up the Sinai Peninsula, we, we begin to find ourselves reading about them engaging other, other people groups, other nations. Um, so these are the, the five that we'll come across typically first. Let's mention them quickly so you, when, you, when you come across these, you'll see them. The Canaanites is a term that is used of all the people who live in the land of Canaan. Canaan, you have to go back way back to Genesis chapter 10. You find that Canaan, in chapter 9, really before that he's mentioned, chapter 10 tells us, though, uh, Canaan is the grandson of Noah. 
Um, and as the grandson of Noah through his father Ham, you remember, right? Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, not to be confused, some people want to say Shem, Ham, and Eggs, but that's entirely different. Um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Canaan is a son of Ham. And so the people, the descendants of Canaan who settled in the promised land are just generally known as Canaanites. Now, they are a pagan people. From the time of Noah to the time you get to Joshua, the Canaanites become a pagan people. They worship idols. They worship nature. And um, they are not tolerated in that worship. So their idols are, are to be torn down. And their worship systems broken apart for the true God that's coming uh, with the people of, of the Hebrews. So the Canaanites, again, it's a very general term. Um, the Moabites and the Amorites are also two groups you'll see in the map there. I'll show you some of the areas where they would have occupied east of, east of Jordan. Uh, Moab is the son of Lot. Go back to Genesis again for this. Uh, the son of Lot through his incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. From that relationship was born a, a man-child and became Moab, and his descendants, Moabites, also were a pagan people. They did not follow God. Lot also had an incestuous relationship with his younger daughter, and from that union came Ammon. The Ammonites will also be a pagan people. And so uh, that you can see on the map, they pretty much lived side by side. They had a common heritage. They would point to themselves as descendants of Ammon and Moab um, uh, and ultimately to Lot. And of course, remember Lot as the nephew of Abraham. The Edomites is a group that you hear about much in this time. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob, right? Isaac has two, has, a, has two sons that are twins, Isaac and Esau, and the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And they too were, were not, you know, not really God followers of their heritage of Abraham. Um, they too were, were more pagan and really, um, like all these groups here, had little use for the descendants of Abraham that were known as the Hebrews through the lineage of, of uh, Jacob. And so there was conflict between them constantly. Uh, the Ammonites did some of the worst things to the, uh, in battle. The first battle the Hebrews have is against the Ammonites. And the Ammonites are constantly, again, as really all these groups are in one way or another, constantly battling the Hebrews. So you got the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Another group is the Midianites. Okay? The Midianites are a group they are the descendants of Abraham, all right? So we know Abraham and Sarah, right? Sarah dies. You go back to Genesis, latter part of Genesis, or middle part of Genesis, rather. Sarah dies. Abraham is left a widower. He will remarry. He will remarry a woman named Keturah. And through Keturah, he will father six sons. And they're named for us in Scripture. One of those six sons is Midian, and so the Midianites will claim an Abraham heritage, and, and indeed they have the right to do that. The Midianites are not listed on our map because the Midianites did not occupy one particular land area. They were nomads. They were shepherds. If you go back to the story of Moses, 
And you may remember this in the scripture, and you may remember it from Charlton Heston. I'll give you, give you latitude to either one of those. Moses will marry a wife of the Midianites. And again, because they had a heritage to Abraham, but they are a descendant of Abraham through his second wife, not through the promised um, Isaac. And so you have all these people groups. Now, these five people groups all have some connection, as you can see, to the biblical accounts. What's unique about them is that they all five have a, an animosity, even a hatred toward the people of the Hebrews and their worship of Yahweh, this, the God who has called and the God who is, who said, I am that I am to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. They have a, an, an animosity, even a hatred for the Hebrews because of that, because they follow their own pagan gods. We're not done with people groups, though. As you continue to read through these accounts of the Old Testament, the historical accounts, we also come across other groups. Um, so we'll mention these quickly. The Hittites, the Phoenicians, and the Philistines. The Hittites, as you see at the top there, the map, their empire would be north of, of the Promised Land. The Hittites are what's called an Indo-European national, uh, national group. They basically come from the southeast part of Europe. So they are in the long-term descendants of Japheth. And their, their, their empire was quite extensive. And archaeology has found many things. The Hittites were debated greatly from the uh, few hundred years ago until the 16, 17, 1800s. They started finding all types of evidence in the Middle East about the Hittites. And again, the Bible was proven to be true. The Hittites uh, were, were described in Scripture as being a very powerful people. So you have the Hittites that they come across occasionally. The Phoenicians are not mentioned in Scripture. They sort of are an external or extra-biblical account. The Phoenicians settled in the northern regions of the land of the Promised Land there. The Phoenicians come from Phoenicia, um, which is uh, also in Europe. And they, but they come as a peaceful people. They have no animosity against the Hebrews. They don't share that long history of them being distant cousins and all these family feuds that are happening. So they kind of come into history and occupy a place there and sort of disappear without much fanfare. But secular history, if you can go back and remember some of your world history studies, the Phoenicians were one of the first cultures who sailed much of the Mediterranean Sea coming south. Another group that will come south but will make their presence known, and certainly the Scripture recognizes them, are the Philistines. The Philistines are also a European group. So all these three bottom groups on the list here all come from Europe. And they come and move to the land of Israel as we know it today. And they move to the lower part along the coastline of the Promised Land, and they are the Philistines. The Philistines, of course, may, may rock a memory in your mind because it's the Philistines that will battle Israel quite voraciously in many cases. Uh, David will fight Goliath. Goliath is a Philistine. Uh, the Philistines will, 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 will uh, battle with Israel. Um, and we'll mention some of that as we go through our stages here briefly, quickly, when we look at this. But the Philistines are much more of a warrior people. They are in many ways more advanced they are what is, what is considered so, the pinnacle of the Iron Age of this period. And I'll mention that in a moment. You'll see why. So there's a little bit of an overview of some of the people groups that we, uh, we, as we come across. 
So tonight we're going to look at the, the books of First and Second Samuel very quickly. I promise I've got one slide for each. It won't take long to do either one of them. Um, and as we start First Samuel, which is kind of the next historical book, what happens? Well, before we, get in, before we get too far into Samuel, we have to realize that Israel is still being ruled by judges, that the accounts of the book of Judges is still carried over. Samuel himself will be a judge. As a matter of fact, Samuel will be the last judge of Israel, a very influential judge of Israel, and one well-respected. I, I, I think many times we as New Testament Christians um, just have lost the respect that Samuel really deserves. He, in many ways, uh, would be used by God to do great things for Israel as a transition into a nation. They go from being just a regional group of people with different cities and different communities and different leaders and different judges to a unified people. Samuel oversee that entire process. And so his, his place in Scripture is very vital. But Israel is still ruled in the system of the judges. There is a very much influential dominance of the Philistines. And again, when we open Samuel up, we find that as we continue to read through Samuel, the Philistines are the, have become the mortal enemies of the Hebrews or the Israelites. Why? They don't have this historical family feud, if you will. Their battle is over land. They're wanting, they're, they see Israel and the land as what they want to possess. And so the battle with them is a constant battle over land. Uh, they are coming in as, as warlike people from Europe looking to dominate uh, the landmass of what we know today is the Middle East, and particularly of Israel. And so the Philistines, why are the Philistines so dominant? Let's mention a few things. Again, they are non-Semitic. The Philistines would have claimed their heritage through the, through the lineage of Japheth, the, uh, one of the sons of Noah. It's the sons of Japheth that will, the descendants of Japheth that will occupy the European landmass. So the Semitic people are the people of Shem, those whose heritage belong to the Middle East. They come from a region in the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea is east of Greece. And uh, they come as a pretty well-advanced culture already. Uh, we are told that they are advanced in ironworks. Why is that a big deal? Because they can make weapons. They can make spearheads that aren't just sticks with sharp ends on them, right? They can make uh, wheels. They can make armor. I mean, it's really the advanced technology of the day is to be able to do ironwork. And the Hebrews did not have that skill. It was not in their, it was not in their repertoire to be able to do that. Uh, it's even mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, this one statement that there was no blacksmith in Israel. Well, what's a blacksmith? An iron worker. Someone who knew how to, how to put the, the right materials together at the right heat and how to blend all these things to make uh, malleable iron and to harden it into kneaded utensils. And so, you know, Israel's living in the time of clay pots and sharp sticks and arrows but, and stone but they are not iron workers. It's not in their culture yet. So that's one of the reasons why the Philistines were such a formidable force. They had more weaponry and were able to create a, a more devastating army because of that. The Philistines will establish, and these cities are named in Scripture, the Philistines will establish their strongholds in five cities, uh, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gaza, that ring a bell, and Gath, um, 
Gath is probably most known because it is the home of uh, Goliath and his brothers. They were all sons of the city of Gath. Gaza, wow, we hear about that. We heard about that in the news just yesterday, and we'll mention it again before we finish. Uh, this particular region, region of the Promised Land, um, is exactly, not exactly, but is pretty close to what we would understand today as the Gaza Strip. Okay, uh, I'll show you this in, in a map in just a moment. Uh, they were adversaries. The Philistines now are adversaries of Israel for generations. We go back to Samson in the book of Judges, at the end of Judges, right? Who are Samson's adversaries? The Philistines. And they're constantly battling and, and aggravating each other, to say the least. It's the Philistines who finally capture. You know, it's the Philistine, it's the Philistine uh, I'll be kind and call her uh, a lady. It's a very kind word. Um, a Philistine lady who lures Samson, and he is captured. And by her allurements, the Philistines capture Samson and put his eyes out. And uh, the great end of Samson's life happens in a Philistine stadium. Um, Eli, who is the, when we open up the book of Samuel, he is the judge of Israel at the time. Uh, Eli, uh, the next generation. Samuel will, will battle with the Philistines too. Uh, Eli, the Philistines will actually kill Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. I'll mention them here in a moment. In a great battle, it'll be the Philistines who will capture the Ark of the Covenant and take it back to their city of Ashdod. Uh, Samuel has to deal with them. The first king of Israel, Saul, has to deal with the Philistines constantly. Saul will die from the, and his sons will die from a battle battles with the Philistines. David himself has to battle the Philistines, beginning with Goliath. But that's a battle that's in the time of the rule of Saul and so, uh, in 1 Samuel 18. So you've got, you've got this multi-generational problem with the Philistines. Again, it's almost as if the other groups, the Hittites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and all those other people, it's almost as if they disappear off the scene. But the Philistines could make themselves and their presence known because, they, again, they had this advanced technology um, of ironwork, which made them such a big deal. So in preparing for the transition, the transition meaning from Israel as a sort of a piecemeal puzzle of groups of people and communities to a nation with a king, as we prepare for that, there's some things we come across in Scripture to keep in mind. Israel has become very much an idol-worshiping country. Their apostasy to continue to worship Ashtaroth in the groves, to worship Baal in his, in his uh, altars, to worship Moloch is still very much at the heart and core of what Israel is battling with. And of course, that does not bring the blessing of God. It brings the judgment of God. Eli is the priest in Shiloh. Shiloh had become the religious center for the, for the Hebrews. And uh, Eli was there. The tabernacle was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. So it was kind of the central place where um, the religious activity of the nation was conducted until later when David will bring the Ark to Jerusalem. Hophni and Phinehas are the two sons of Eli. And they, they, are, very, um, they are very sinister characters. They are the epitome of two young men who grew up and did all the things God would not want them to do. They broke God's law quite frequently and were very corrupt, and they die in judgment as a part of that at the hand of the Philistines. 
And when Eli gets word that uh, his sons have been killed by the Philistines, uh, Eli himself uh, collapses and will fall over dead. I'll mention it in just a moment. So the Philistines defeat Israel, and this was kind of the last straw. Uh, again, kind of as a, um, a ragtag army, they had very little chance. Not only did they defeat Israel, they captured the ark. And they took the ark back to their god. Now, again, you, we mentioned the other three gods. Those were gods of the Canaanites and of the Moabites and of the uh, pagan nations of the Promised Land. The Philistines had their own god because they were a seafaring people, uh, and they built their, their strongholds basically along the coastline. Um, the Philistines had a god that was, that was basically part fish and part human. He is known as Dagon. And when you read in Samuel, you'll read about the, the idol god Dagon of the Philistines. So they defeat Israel. And at this, at this news, the ark is captured. Eli's sons are killed. Eli, we're told, falls backward. He's in a chair. He's 98 years old at the time. And where the scripture calls him large. Uh, and he collapses backward and dies upon contact. And uh, so now, boy, you talk about turmoil. The man who has led Israel all these many decades is now dead. His sons are dead. The ark has been captured. It is a dark day in the land of Israel, for sure. And at this news, then, steps into the role Samuel. Samuel has been trained under Eli. If you remember the story, you go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Eli's mother, Hannah, Remember that name, Hannah? Hannah is without child, and she comes to Shiloh to come and to pray and beg God for a son. And her, to summarize it, she says to the Lord, if you will give me a son, I will raise him and dedicate him that he may serve you all the days of his life. And indeed, the Lord honored that prayer, and Hannah honored her promise. She would bring this young child back to Eli as a young man, very young man, and he will be raised in the shadow of Eli that he might learn the duties of the priest and the prophet and the judge of Israel. And so Samuel will raise up then at the death of Eli to become the prophet that will lead Israel and transition Israel and will anoint her first two kings. He will anoint Saul. He will later anoint David uh, from the house of Jesse. And so Samuel becomes the preeminent character as we continue reading into the book of 1 Samuel. Again, our, our Bible has Samuel divided into two sections. And through those two sections, we see the transition of the prophet-priest-judge position of Eli, then Samuel, into the anointing and the appointment of Saul to be the king, and later David, and of course after him Solomon, to be the kings of Israel. And that's the primary thought that happens as we read into 1 Samuel. Our Bible has two books of Samuel, 1 and 2. They are both relatively long books, which is why they're divided. They were divided many, many centuries ago uh, when they were scrolls because it was too, they were too big to put in one scroll. So you'd have one scroll that told part of the story of Samuel, another scroll that told the second part of the story of Samuel, and that tradition of having 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, became what we recognize in our Bibles today. The same account will happen as we'll talk next week about the books of the Kings and the Chronicles. 
So there's the transition that's happening. So let's look. I said there's just two slides for this. We'll go through it quickly. In 1 Samuel, uh, the first two chapters have to do with that story of Hannah and the birth of, of Samuel and Samuel being brought back to the house of Eli. We're told something about Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Those aren't exactly names that uh, we are familiar with. Uh, probably, we've had, we probably know some people named Sam or Samuel. We probably do not know anyone named Hophni and Phinehas, and for good reason. They are not worthy of the, of the character of a name to, to name a child with, for sure. Uh, so we're told that story of his sons and how sort of corrupt his sons had become. We're told then about Samuel and how Samuel was rising up to sort of be this man of great character and great desire, serving God, how he fulfilled that role, and God blessed him in that role and in his ministry. Um, we're told of his anointing of Saul and then the anointing of, of the, the king as, a, as the first king of Israel and all that happened. Do you remember much about Saul? Saul was chosen um, because he was taller than all the other Jews, you know, a tall Jew. What's a tall Jew? I don't know, five foot four, five foot six, something like that, right? He was, Jews are typically not tall in stature. It's just the nature of the Shemite. Um, but we're told Saul was taller. He was head and shoulders, right? We know that beyond the dandruff shampoo. He was head and shoulders taller than the other, uh, his other kinsmen. We're also told he was a man of stature, had some strength. He was a, he was a good-looking man. And basically, he was picked because he was the best-looking guy of the bunch. They put him up on the stage and said, we'll have the debate. And they went, oh, we like Saul best. He's, he's the most, you know, he's the kind of king we want. But he was a man who started well, but if you know the story of Saul, it ended very poorly. Uh, his life is really a, a sad tragedy of someone who started with all the best opportunities to serve, Lord, serve the Lord in his role as king and influence generations to come, but he made very poor choices. And uh, again, it's a study unto itself to take Saul's life. Eventually, of course, David is, is anointed as the king while he is still a, a young man. The youngest of the sons of Jesse, we're told, and Samuel will go and anoint him to be a future king of Israel. And boy, lots of turmoil happens in between that time and the time he becomes Israel's king. Uh, the most famous story recorded for us in chapter 17, I think I might have mentioned 18 earlier, but chapter 17 is the story of David and Goliath, the story that we all learned as children and has some recognition to us today. It is a great story to teach young people for sure, but it's a great, it's a great reality of uh, life, of God working through even uh, one individual, what a difference one individual can make. So there's, there's still stories and truths for us to learn today from the life of, of the story of David and Goliath. David, of course, has his encounters with Saul, who seeks to kill him, and uh, all those back-and-forth events that happen uh, recorded for us in many chapters, there, 18 through 30, and then eventually Saul's death. Saul actually takes his own life in that battle with the Philistines. He realizes death is certain. He has been wounded. He cannot fight any longer, and he falls on his own sword. He first asked one of his servants to kill him, but his servant was too afraid to do so. So Saul took and fell on the sword himself to kill himself, and, um, and that will uh, bring about his end, of course, there in chapter 31. We close 1 Samuel with that very sad ending. Um, and what's Israel going to do now? As you get to 2 Samuel, we see this list of things covered in 24 chapters. Uh, the chapter 1 is the response to Saul's death. The nation does mourn. David um, will certainly be the leading spokesperson through this time. David will, will become king not in one event, but in two events. He becomes king first of Judah, 
and um, uh, uh, the tribe that he is of, uh, I'm sorry, the largest of the tribes, David's of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, of the largest of the tribes, David becomes, they recognize him first as the king. And then later in all of Israel will recognize him as king, and he will take on that role. And of course, David is a man after God's own heart, but David has his problems too. Uh, he, he has various battles he has to fight and win. Who are those battles against? The Philistines primarily. And he will, uh, he will engage those battles. Uh, of course, the event of Bathsheba comes to our mind when we think much of David's life um, and sort of the, 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 bottom of, the bottom of his life would be found there in many ways. And uh, I'm very confident we've probably about one time or another heard a good sermon on the life of, of David during this time frame with Bathsheba and what comes out of that and the, and the many consequences that were born out of that. From chapter 13 to 20, David's troubles. That's a pretty good way to say it. Once he, once he engages himself with the events related to Bathsheba, it seems his life takes a hard turn. And that hard turn primarily comes because of his own decisions. And his challenges are just multiplied. He has challenges within his family. He has challenges within the kingdom. He has at least one son who tries to uh, overthrow him to become the king himself. He has lots of political challenges, family challenges, religious challenges. Israel's trying to find her place again um, and to overcome these enemies, especially the Philistines. What do they do? And then we close 2 Samuel with David's latter years. We don't close with the death of David. We just close with the latter part of his life and some of the challenges he has faced and some of the things he has done. He has not given the opportunity, though, to do one thing he had desired. He had made Jerusalem the king, uh, the, uh, the capital of the kingdom of Israel. And uh, that, of course, would, as it still is today, a landmark place in Israel's history. And in doing so, making Jerusalem the capital, uh, he does not build the temple. That's what he had hoped to do. That would be, God had told him, that will not be up to you. You will not build it, you're a man of war. I will have your son build it, who will be a man of peace. And that will be Solomon. We'll get to him um, in the, uh, as we get into the Kings and Chronicles next time. So David's latter years there, we close 2 Samuel. The, uh, this is really an important time in the history of Israel, as they're founding themselves and identifying themselves for the first time as a nation. And so the sequence of events that are, that are important to us in time markers or date markers Again, you'll find some variance within your Bible footnotes or different commentaries, but these are, generally speaking, some pretty good typical time markers to put a date to some of these. In 1446 B.C., the exodus from Egypt occurs. Of course, we're going all the way back to exodus there uh, with that account. Israel arrives in Canaan some 40 uh, years later, um, and they, they march in under the hand of Joshua, of course. Uh, then the, uh, the time of the judges will take place. Now notice the time frame here. From entering the land of Canaan until the, land, to the life of Samuel, there's 400 years. 300 plus years of that will be the account of the judges. And then the latter part of that will be the account of Eli and Samuel. So we get the life of Samuel and the influence he has. The very end of that is the last judge of Israel. Then you get the rule of Saul, the first king. Then you followed by that, by the, uh, the, the start of David's reign about uh, 1010 B.C. And, uh, of course, we, we, can, we can mark a lot of, and you'll see me do this as we finish or go through the rest of the Old Testament. We'll put some dates so we can have some identity of, of when these things happen and sort of get a reference point for time. So that's where we close 2 Samuel is uh, the end of David's reign, at least for now, the latter part of it. We'll see the conclusion of it 
as we get into the books of Kings and Chronicles. Now, let's, let's close briefly uh, to make the modern connection to this, you know, to this uh, study and how timely the connection is. The modern connection on this map of Israel. So Israel is what you see outlined uh, in the map there, the, the, the tan color outline of Israel. And uh, what you see here is that region called Philistia, occupied by who? The Philistines, right, for hundreds of years. The Philistines will have their name changed eventually as the Greek Empire, and we're talking about 300, we're talking about 700 years after the reign of David, when the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great will come into the region, and the Greeks begin writing about this region, they will call it Palestine, as we would say in English. They changed the name Philistia to Palestine or Palestine. And so that transition in a name has been adopted over the years and still today, right? If you've read or listened to a news broadcast in the last 36 hours, you've probably heard the name Palestine or the Palestinians, the people that occupy the area now. Remember I said the area that is pretty typical of the very region that those Philistines came to, one of their cities was called Gaza. And so today still, here we are, right? 3,500 years later, calling an area of land Gaza, the Gaza Strip, it's known as, after the city Gaza that was first instituted by the Philistines during the time of the judges. And so the Gaza Strip as we know it today. And today it's not occupied by, right, Philistines. It's occupied by Palestinians, the Palestinian Arabs. What happened to the Philistines? Over the centuries, they will die out. The first empire to overtake this land from Israel will be the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, later the Medo-Persians, and then later the Greeks. So that's a series of empires that will follow. What happened to the Philistines? They basically got absorbed. They lost their identity because they just married in and sort of blended in with the people who were in that region already. So there is no identifiable group today called Philistines who live in the Gaza Strip. They are called Palestinians, not because they have Philistine heritage, but because of the region that they live in. And of course, the flag at the bottom of the map there is the flag of the Palestinian people. There is no land of Palestine. The Palestinians live within the borders of Israel. But they do claim two places that we hear about in the news regularly, the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights, as the places where they identify as a people group. And they are run by the Palestinian Liberation Organization as their governing body. And again, some of you know all the stories and the histories, and, um, and you remember names like Yasser Arafat and others who are identified with the Palestinians in history. So... Uh, the Palestinian identity today is still one that's in the news. And, of course, we recognize that little area there. That's what we're talking about. That's the Gaza Strip as we know it today. And it pretty much mimics a general area of the, what the Philistines occupied. So when you're reading First and Second Samuel, even the end of Judges, you're reading about an area of land that is still in the news today. It's not been lost in obscurity. It's still very vital today and very much in our news. Now, we're going we're gonna, to continue this discussion, not next week, remember. Hope you'll be here next Sunday night, but it'll be for the Bible conference. Um, and in two weeks, we'll come to the, the books, the four books of the Kings and Chronicles. 
And uh, we'll look at those. A kingdom united becomes a kingdom divided. And then we'll take that to the next step next week, and then the next lesson or other. I uh, remind you, thanks for your continued support and prayers for the uh, Appel family, a missionary family over serving in the uh, South Pacific. And uh, I've been keeping up with emails from Jed, and, and uh, the Lord is doing some great work through them. Uh, you can tell a big family. Some of their families here in the States, as they're in school, uh, others are still there with them and serving with them. And uh, Jed is serving a great function over there. I continue to say I look forward to the day when we can have Jed here. He's been here, but it's been many years. And so I'm looking forward to the opportunity for him to be back in the States and uh, to come visit us. But uh, thanks for your continued support. The boxes out there and everything you give will go to help support this, uh, this family. Of course, uh, the events of, of what we've seen in Israel uh, can't be ignored. And I want to close our time today in prayer. Uh, this is right off a of, uh, New York Times um, website just this afternoon. I picked it off. Israel battles militants as Benjamin Netanyahu warns of a long war. Who knows where this is going to go? And we were watching uh, amazing pictures of things happening there in the Gaza Strip. Uh, more than 1,100 dead, including more than 600. I even saw one report of 700 Israelis. I put the two names at the bottom because those are two missionaries we support in Israel. Um, Kathy Wright, who was here speaking for us uh, March, maybe the earlier this year. And uh, Kathy's a longtime friend of our, of our church serving there. And uh, Mike and Jessica Stover, you can see their pictures out on our missions map. Uh, Mike and Jessica Stover have five girls. Can you imagine being in that family situation? I can imagine as a dad the challenges and, and the fear that might create, but we're thankful for them. And how, how dare us not be obligated to pray for them, right, during this time and challenges. Um, Kathy Wright sent an email out yesterday while she was in a bomb shelter. I did a lot of things yesterday, but I have to worry about going to a bomb shelter. And uh, so we want to be praying for them and praying for them diligently in the days ahead. So think of these names, maybe write them down and pray for them as we uh, go into the days ahead and uh, see what happens there and continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and pray for the safety of the innocents and uh, for, for uh, Israel as a nation, of course, to stand up against these terrorists uh, in their own way. Well, let's pray, and we'll dismiss from there. Father, thank you for your word. It is as current and relevant today as, uh, as it was when it was written. And we see events of the history of the, of the scriptures, even impactful and things that are happening around us today. And uh, I thank you for recording your word for us and preserving it for us that we can look at it and understand some of your work. First, in the, in the nation of Israel, but only as a stepping stone to do your work through the Messiah who would come through that nation of Israel to be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do pray tonight for the, the nation of Israel. Pray for their leadership and the, uh, the position they find themselves in. I pray for safety for innocent lives. I pray that you will bless the many and multiple Christian ministries that are trying to have an impact there. We pray for Kathy and for the Stover family. Father, please give, give your angels to protect them and guard them. Not just those two, but others who are there ministering in the name of Christ. I pray that you'll protect them and keep them safe. They are there, and being there has put them in a, a place of challenge and danger, and I pray that you'll protect them. And may we be diligent to pray for them regularly and daily as we move forward and watch the events unfold there. We do pray that there will be peace brought about quickly and that you will do a work. But we know you're preparing um, a, a great stage for end times, and we can watch with confidence and know that you will do all things appropriate. But we do pray for your hand of safety and protection upon those that are there and for the innocent lives and ask that you might bring a peace um, in, in, uh, in your will and in your timing. Bless us as we go into the evening, as we go into a new week. May we be 
uh, testimonies for you, as Pastor Nick reminds us this morning, to be a testimony for Christ in all that we do and say. In his name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great evening.